What should you expect when you go to church? And what should you expect from the pastor and the pulpit of that church? We discuss that in the book of Acts today. Plus, you've probably been hearing that coronavirus is on the upswing. Is it making a comeback? Should we be scared? Should we be anxious? I assure you, we shouldn't be. And I give you statistical research as to why not. You don't want to miss this episode of The Deep End. Welcome back, everybody. It is Tuesday night on The Deep End. My name is Tim Hatch. I'm the host of The Deep End podcast, The Deep End show, youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. If you are on YouTube right now, please like and subscribe, like and subscribe. Click the thumbs up and hit the notification bell so that you get notified on your smart device whenever we are live or post new content. It's good to be with you. Welcome to 99.5 FM in Woonsocket. Welcome to AM 590 WEZE Family 590 Radio in Boston. Welcome to Spotify. Welcome to Facebook. Welcome to all of you. And if you could, in the comments below, just confirm for me that this is, in fact, your favorite night of the week. I'll settle for second favorite because date night, if you're married or engaged or dating, should be first maybe. But this could be second. Second favorite night of the week. Well, welcome anyway. Um, we've got a new segment here on The Deep End. I'm really excited to debut this segment, it's called the Serve Team Spotlight, how people are serving God at Waters Church. I want you to watch this. so I am here with Victor and Lisa Matos. They are the serve team leaders of the cafe ministry. Welcome to the D-Ben first time interviewees. Thank you. Thank you, yes we are, yeah. yes. So yes. glad to have you guys here. So how long have you guys been at Waters Church? Since 2009. 2009. How, how long have you been in the cafe ministry? So I have been since 2009. So you just jumped right in? I did. Excellent, and you? Uh, what I took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing other ministries. Um, yeah. Parking, everything else, pretty much, except the cafe. And if I remember correctly, you came on the cafe team when she took the leadership role. That's correct. What, yes. what year did you take the leadership role? About two years ago. Uh, you took it over from? I took it over from Kristen. Kristen. And oh, she Jim took it over Shackleton. from Jim Shackleton. Yes. Correct. Right. So that's what happens. You know, Jim goes and plants the church in Woonsocket. He leads it to somebody else. They raise you up. Now you are leading it and doing a great job. So Lisa, we were talking about this earlier before the interview, and that is you told me about a story of people who not yet ready to come into the sanctuary, but ready to come to church, and the cafe serves as a bridge between those two things. In particular, there's this one gentleman who um, would come to the cafe. He wasn't really um, comfortable going into the sanctuary, never went to church. Um, he would come every week and um, have a latte, and then, you know, um, just hang in the cafe, chit-chat a little bit, Yeah. yep, and then leave. Um, and then this Eventually, he actually came in, brought his mother, and um, they actually went into the sanctuary, and they listened to the message, and, you know, it was awesome to see that they he went from not wanting to even come into the church to actually going into the sanctuary and listening to the message. So the cafe ministry really does serve as that bridge point, that con we were talking about that, the connection point yes. right. between just Absolutely. coming to church and being in the sanctuary. Correct. And then once they're in the sanctuary, who knows what happens? The word goes in, the worship happens, their yes. hearts are changed, right. and before you know it, Jesus has them. 
Yes. And yes. that's the best part about this ministry. Yes, yes, it is. It is. It's awesome. It really is. Awesome. Talk to the person over there that's listening to me and saying, I don't know if I should serve in the cafe. Why should they serve in the cafe? Uh, I mean, I think it's important. So for me, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. And so I can't, I don't really like to socialize. So that was like the easy thing for me to do. Um, I could go in the cafe, nobody could really see me. But at the same time, like I grew with the group that is serving. So you become friends with them, you become a family, and that kind of helps you grow, not only, you know, coming to church, but spiritually and everything, you kind of build each other up. And then it gives you like, you know, excitement to serve and to help. Yeah, so, so you would say it's like a safer way to socialize. Yes. For the in, for the interview for introverts among that's us. Correct. Yes. That's correct. Because I'm not an introvert. I don't know if you've noticed that. I have. I have. I have. He's not either. I'm not either. And so, so you're on the front lines, and she's uh, in the back more, so to yeah, speak. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I I, I I I talk to anybody and everybody. Yeah. Um, especially those that I see that maybe having a little bit of a bad bad morning, maybe a little bit bad day. I try, you know, and give them a little little bit of extra like customer service, so to speak. Um, make them smile. Little, personal touch. Yes, little, per, little personal touch. Just talk to them and and just figure, try and figure out like if there's something wrong or that I can help them with, or maybe even pray for them. So there's really no excuse. Whether, whether wherever you are on that spectrum, that's correct. Introvert, really extrovert. We have a place for you. Cafe's for you. Yes. Yep. It's fun. It's a fun environment. Yeah, it is fun. So is the cafe team rearing to go? Jump back in. What's going on? Yeah, everybody's ready. Yeah, ready. Yeah, we're all ready to go. We just. Waiting for the okay? In-person dining is back in Massachusetts. Yes. Yes. So that means we can open our cafe. Right. We'll have the nitro brews back. We'll yes. have the specialty coffees back. Yes. You guys got that professional cappuccino espresso machine in there. Yes, yes. we do. So it's like a full-fledged, it's almost like a Starbucks in our church, but run by Water Church. That's, it is. that's correct, yep. yes. So thank you so much for being on this show, the Deep End uh, podcast. You watch Deep End? Yes, yes we do. Okay, you have to watch to be on the interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a prerequisite, yes. Victor and Lisa Matos, lead lead team members, uh, wait, no, serve team leaders of the Cafe Ministry of Water Church. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having thank, us. Thank you for awesome. having us. And if you are interested in joining one of our many serve teams, please visit waterschurch.org slash serve. Waterschurch.org slash serve. We make it as easy as possible for you to sign up and partner with us in preaching and proclaiming Jesus here in our communities. Okay, let's get to the Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So are you hearing that the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus is making a comeback? Are you hearing the news reports? Are you starting to get anxious again? Are you thinking back to May, like early March, when you were starting to wonder what this all meant? And then when you're two weeks in, you're wondering, oh, my gosh, how, hard, how bad is this going to be? And then four weeks in, will the lockdown ever end? And then three months later, we start to get a glimmer of hope and reopen. And maybe now, because, you know, remember that news outlets have a vested interest in keeping your attention and they traffic in getting you anxious and worried. Um, they make more money the more anxious that you are, the more you tune in to find out how bad it could get. I want to bring a little bit of calm. And please, please, please don't consider this a political moment. This is a moment for pastoral care for you because I care about your spiritual life. I care that your anxiety levels might shoot through the roof because you keep hearing all the bad news about coronavirus making a comeback. Okay. For instance, today on foxnews.com, I saw this headline like 11 minutes ago. It said this, Texas hospital COVID-19 leader, quote, this surge has moved to more of an under 50 population, end quote. And the always reliable CNN 
this quote, this article headlined like this: Fauci warns Congress that new U.S. coronavirus cases could top uh, could top one hundred thousand a day. Okay. Here's my pastoral advice to you: Please, 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 turn off the news. They traffic in getting you worried. They traffic in getting you all worked up. Okay, I want to bring some calm. I want to bring some truth. And I'm going to do it, actually, not with scripture first. Actually, in this news section, I'm going to do it with facts. So I actually do have a news site that I kind of like and I would recommend to you. It's called Stream, The Stream. It's stream.org. It ran this article today. It's all factual. Stream.org. Here's the article title. Why you shouldn't panic about spikes and surges in new coronavirus cases. Why you shouldn't panic. Okay, this is by William Briggs, stream.org. And he, and he says, quote in the article, it's important to distinguish between the official CDC deaths and media reported deaths, which have been consistently higher by about 10%. In other words, the media says there's a number of deaths and then it's actually 10% lower in reality. Now, the stream reports this and also the very left-wing, very progressive, very secular news outlet, The Atlantic, reports the exact same findings. As of June 26, the CDC ascribed 109,000 deaths to the coronavirus. The media reported 118,000 deaths. That's 9,000 deaths higher in the media, in the news outlets. They have a vested interest in getting you anxious, okay? Just know this. Just know this, okay? The CDC numbers are also too high by many accounts. In fact, you remember that Dr. Deborah Burks, who was one of the main doctors on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, she was interviewed almost every single day at those White House briefings, has repeatedly stated that the CDC numbers are even probably 25% higher than reality. In other words, there's a great chance that a quarter of the deaths are not actually COVID deaths. They aren't actually COVID-related. I have more factual data from the CDC website itself to show you that in spite of the surge in cases, deaths are actually dramatically plummeting. I want to show you this chart. I'm going to put it full screen because I want you to see. This goes back to April 4th. In April 4th, we had 9,514 COVID-19 involved deaths. Now, involved is a key word here because involved means that they could have died with coronavirus. They could have died of coronavirus, both and. So maybe it wasn't the cause, but it was there at the time of death. It surges to 15,000 on the 11th, 16,000 on the 18th, the 25th, 14,000. Then it starts to slowly decline. These are COVID-involved deaths, slowly declining all the way to June 20th, 2020, which is just a few days ago, a little bit more than a week ago. The weekly total of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. was 1270. Now, I want you to see this third column. And again, this is facts to bring some calm into your life. This third column really excited me. Well, not excited me because any death is bad, but it really got me hopeful. It's, the column is from the CDC website, percentage of expected deaths compared to uh, the average number of deaths in total from 2017 to 2019. So how many deaths during that week did we have? What percentage of deaths compared to the annual average of that week? So you can see that April 4th, it goes to 127%. So 127% of the expected deaths based on the averages of the last three years we had in 2020. Then it goes up the next week on the 4th, on the 11th to 140%. It ticks down to 139% in the 18th, 132 on the 25th, and it goes all the way down, steadily starts to decline. Now, now check this out, the last three columns from uh, June 6th right now down to June 20th. It goes 97%, 83%, 52%. Do you understand what that is saying? That is saying right here, this is so important, this is so cool, this is so help, hopeful, sorry, that we have in the week of June 20th, 52% of the expected 
annual average deaths of that particular week over the last three years. Which means, and in 2020, on the week of June 20th, we had half the number of average deaths. This is actually very good news. And that's total deaths. That's not just, that's not just COVID-19 deaths. That's total deaths. Do you know what the good news is? The good news is less people are dying than, than the last four years this past week. I just want to put this uh, chart up there for you. Uh, this is the spike. You see, we all remember the spike. Horrible spike. Sad, sad, sad time. Every death is sad. Every person's life matters. We, we mourn with those who mourn, absolutely. But I just want to bring calm to you because you can see that is, the death count has steadily declined and you are here, okay? It's still going down. It's almost down to pre-crisis levels, the death count of COVID-19. Okay, still, I know. I, I'm not saying COVID's not a bad, uh, not a serious crisis. I'm not saying we should just play fast and loose with health. Uh, nope. Actually, I think that the, the, the lockdown worked. I think that we can see that uh, death rate has actually plummeted. And isn't it good? And I think that maybe the death rate, the overall death rate has plummeted to less, almost half the percentage of, of normal death rates this time of year. Maybe because staying away from sick people is a good idea all the time. <laughs> Maybe we should ban handshaking. I don't know. Maybe we should just elbow tap for the rest of our lives. I'm in favor of that. Anybody with me? <laughs> anyway, I've always had a little bit of a germaphobe problem, uh, so I can get on board with that real easy. Listen, I know some of you have lost loved ones, and I understand. But listen, I also know some stories. Okay, I got an elder in this church who had his mother separated. He was segregated from his mother, and his mother was very sick for many years. And the last three months of her life, she, he could not see her, could not visit her because of COVID, because of the lockdown. And she died, and she was listed as a COVID death, but she didn't die of COVID. My wife told me of a friend who has three clients who told her that they had three deaths in the family that were listed as COVID deaths, and they were not caused by COVID. Okay, maybe they died with COVID, but they were not caused by COVID. I'm just trying to bring calm. Please understand, this is not a political statement. This is a pastoral statement to bring calm to you because the news media, okay, whatever particular brand of news you digest on a daily basis, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, or one of the 24-hour news cycles, you, news channels. You've got to relax. You've got to let the news go by the wayside because they, they traffic in getting you upset. They traffic in getting you worried. And I don't want that for you. I care for you. I want your spirit at ease. I have deliberately not listened to the news for three straight days. I'll tell you something. I feel great. I feel fantastic. I am happier than I have been in the last three months. And all it took was turning off the news and not visiting news websites and not scrolling up on Twitter. It's been so wonderful. It's been so great. And I trust and I hope and I pray that you can do the same and find joy and find rest in Jesus. Amen? Doesn't that sound good? Speaking of Jesus, let's get to how we should proclaim him in our church gatherings today on the book of Acts. We'll, we'll be there right after this. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, The Deep End TV. Okay, we are in the book of Acts chapter 20, and I've titled this talk, The Practice and Philosophy of Gospel Mission, What You Should Expect When You Go to Church. What You Should Expect When You Go to Church. I uh, ran across some data recently, actually today, um, that really made me happy. And it's something that is actually counter to the narrative of our current cultural moment. The counter, uh, counter 
to the narrative of the current cultural time in which we live. You hear a lot of talk about how the church is on the decline. You hear a lot about how America is more secular than ever. You hear a lot about the rising percentage of nuns, people who have no spiritual life, no faith in God whatsoever. Well, good news, and I'm bringing you good news today on the deep end for a reason. The good news is a lot more people are churched than you realize. A lot more people in America are churched. In other words, they go to church more than you realize. And I want to show you this by statistics, okay? The U.S. adult population, here we go. Uh, the U.S. adult population is 200,000, 200, uh, 209,128,094. That's adult population, okay? 23% of the U.S. adults in this country attend church every week. Do you know how many that is? That's 48,099,461 people. Uh, 10% attend frequently. That number is 20,912,809 people, adults. So we're at 60, uh, 69 million already who regularly go to attend church, maybe not every week, but regularly attend. 12% go once a month. Now, that's far too little. I agree, that's far too little, but they still go to church. 25 million go to church once a month. 24% go seldom, which is about 50 million. Okay, now that's, that's a sad number. I will agree with you. And then the saddest number of all is 29% never attend, which is about 60,647,147 people. This is adults every week. This is an adult average of church attendance. Now, 23% plus 10% plus 12% once a month people, okay? That's a lot of people. That's almost 90 million people, okay? Because... We have to remember that America is a very churched country compared to almost every other country in the world, even now at its most secular kind of season in its history. Maybe most secular. I don't know. I don't know if they had statistics about how many people went to church in 1743. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, it's not as bad as you think about church attendance and people leaving the church. But here's even better news. The average attendance for sporting, cinema, and music events per month in America. Now, this is pre-COVID. This is pre-COVID, so please, please understand, <laughs> disregard the last four months, but pre-COVID, the average adult attendance of sporting, cinema, and music events per month was 30,279,024 people. That's per month. All events. Check that out again compared to the number of American adults that go to church every week of 48,099,461. That's 18 million more people, 18 more million adult Americans go to church every week than go to a concert, a sporting event, or cinema every month. The, by far, the most vastly attended uh, mass gathering in this country is still the local church. That's a really good thing, right? We want people to go to church. I want people to go to church. I'm in the church business. I'm, I'm pro going to church. But... Can I ask a question that's actually very relevant to this discussion? What is up? What is up? If so many people go to church in America, why does America seem so broken, shaken, fearful, hateful, and lost? Because again, you're avoiding the news, hopefully, because the news is so freaking depressing. I mean, the news is sad, isn't it? Sadder than ever before. And America, if you watch the news, it looks more broken than it's ever been before. Maybe you want to just throw your hands up in the air and say, oh my gosh, this, this country is, is doomed for destruction. Why? Why can it be so churched and yet so seemingly hopeless? Well, that's the topic of our conversation around the book of Acts tonight. Because I think we need to read the book of Acts to 
re-engage ourselves with our historical divine mandate as God's people on this earth to proclaim God's message of salvation in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We need to reclaim our heritage. That's why we're going through the book of Acts. See, there is a problem. There is a problem. Because just going to church, and I think this is a baseline argument for the whole thing. As church as we are, there's still so many problems. Because just going to church does not make you a faithful Christian. And I want to tell you something, Who those of you who go to church, <laughs> the problem is not yours. The problem is the churches. The problem is that you have churches that are a problem, and pastors, and leaders of churches that continue to create the problem. I want to talk to you about the real problem of Christianity in America, and it's going to sting. This is going to sting, but as any good doctor, when he applies the antiseptic on the wound, it stings, and then it cleanses, and then it heals, right? Here's the real problem of Christianity in America. Carnal churches and spineless pastors. Carnal churches and spineless pastors. Let me talk about carnal churches first. You know what a carnal church is? A carnal church is one that is filled with divisions, filled with works of the flesh, filled with greed, selfishness, filled with competition, us versus them, filled with meism. It's all about me, my gift, my ministry. First Corinthians, we did this on the podcast in season one. First Corinthians was written to a church that was completely carnal. First Corinthians 3, 1, Paul says, I cannot address you as spiritual people. I have to address you as carnal people. He says you're carnal because you're filled with jealousy. You're filled with strife. This is verse three. You're filled with the works of the flesh. You're behaving in only a human way. You have these divisions. You take each other to court. You're sexually immoral. You get drunk at the Lord's Supper. You deny the resurrection. You deny Orthodox Christian beliefs. You're carnal. And because you're carnal, you're not making an impact in the world. This is the, this is the problem with America's churches. It's not that we don't have enough people going to churches, that we have so many people going to terrible churches. So many people going to carnal churches that, are, that look just like the world. And why, do, why are those churches carnal? I'm going to tell you right now. It's my fault. It's people like my fault. Pastors who have no spine, they will not stand for truth. They will not hold the scriptures in high regard. They want to appease the people. They want to tell them what they want to hear. They want to, they want to play politics. I mean, I'm just amazed at the number of churches that will invite politicians to speak in their pulpits. Why? Politicians are not our hope, and they are not our message. Christ is our message. Do you remember, too, that Jesus is crucified? He's handed over to the Romans to be crucified by both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the left-wing politics of, Jew of the Jewish nation, and the Pharisees were the right-wing politics of the Jewish nation. And Jesus had those two wings of politics in the Jewish nation in the first century come together to put him to death. He offended both parties. He offended both wings. Why has the Christian church lost its mandate to, to challenge and provoke both sides of the political divide in our country to change? To look not to politics and not to people, but to look to Christ. We have left-wing churches. We have right-wing churches. This should not be. We should have Jesus churches, gospel-preaching churches, churches that honor the Word of God above all else. And the reason why we have these carnal churches is because we have spineless pastors who will not preach the truth. Jesus made it very clear that preaching the truth was going to be tough. He said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. He said, I send you out as sheep among wolves, Matthew 10, 16. He said, be, be innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents. You're going to have to be tough if you want to do this. You're going to have to be strong if you want to preach Christ. You can't be spineless and stand in the pulpit of America's churches. You just can't be. But I see so many times that's exactly what happens. Pastors want to be liked by the people. They want to have Instagram followers. They want to have an Instagram following. They want, to, they want to have a social media entourage. It's ridiculous. 
They get, they get so worried if people get shaken by what they say, if they're offended by what they say. If what you say from the pulpit is the truth and people get offended, so what? Let them be offended. Stand for truth. You can't be liked by everybody and be loved by Jesus. It's just impossible. You can't be liked by the world and love Jesus. Paul said to Timothy, if we want to be elders, if we want to be overseers, if we want to be pastors, we desire a noble task. This is 1 Timothy 3. But you have to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, but you must manage your own household well with all dignity, keeping your children submissive. Why is that rule about keeping your children submissive a requirement for being a pastor? Do you know why? Because you can't take care of God's kids if you can't control your own kids. God's kids are just kids. They're children. They act like children all the time. Believe me, I know. I've been in this business 22 years. I have seen it. I have seen the worst of the worst from Christians. We act like children. This is why John will address his readers as my dear children. We are childish in many respects. The churches are filled with children, childish people. And you have to be a father. You have to be strong. You can't be friends with your kids if you want to be a good father. I can't be friends with my, 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 my biological children. I'm not seeking to be their friends. I'm seeking to be their father. I have to be firm. I have to be strong. I have to discipline. I have to do things they don't like. I have to say things they don't want to hear. Sadly, we have too many pastors that want to say things that only garner attention, praise, and applause instead of proclaiming the truth that is in Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed for our sins, the wrath of God that he bore on the cross. I said this past Sunday in our church that the gospel is not God loves you. Can we please stop whittling the gospel down to the words God loves you? That's not the gospel. Now, that is a true statement, God loves you. But here's how he demonstrates his love, Romans 5, 8. He demonstrates his love by sending his only son to die for you. You deserve the cross, and instead Jesus took it. That's the gospel. You deserve the wrath of God for your sins, and Jesus bore the wrath of God for your sins. He who knew no sin, God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These truths need to be proclaimed from America's pulpits because what we have right now is a divided country where both parties like to look down on each other because it always makes us feel better if we can demonize someone else and deify ourselves, deify our own view. This is, this is why America looks so hopeless because instead of looking to Christ as the only hope, we look to our own righteousness. We, we look to our own political view. We look to our own self-righteous attitude about what we think is so wrong about someone else instead of realizing that we are the problem. My heart is evil. It needs a Savior, and God provided that Savior in Jesus. This is what brings me to the conversation we're going to have today around the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Let's get into the text. On the first day of the week, verse 7, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, Paul is in Troas, and he's only going to spend seven days there. We remember from last time on the deep end when we went through the book of Acts, he's only spending seven days there because he doesn't have his friend Titus there, and he's a little bit anxious because he doesn't have a partner in ministry. And we talked about that. It was a very powerful moment about the, the importance of teammates in ministry. Well, even Paul the Apostle needed teammates. Well, He's leaving the next night, and, and the scripture says on the first day of the week, he decides to have a, a message. He starts to preach, and he preaches until midnight, okay? And this little verse, these, two, these three little verses, give us a firsthand account of what the early church, church gatherings looked like, and I think it's a model for us today. What should we expect? This is the question. What should we expect when we gather as the church? You're going to go to church, right? 48 million people are going to go to church every week. Up to, 70, up to 85 million people are going to go to church at least once a month. So what should you expect? 
when you go to church? Well, the scripture says, number one, it's going to happen on the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, we see that the Sabbath actually is no longer the time, but no longer the day on which the church gathers for worship. For thousands of years of Jewish history, they gathered on the seventh day of the week to worship, the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest, the end of the week. We rested after our work. Why? Because that's what God did in the created order. This is what God prescribes for his Jewish, for his Jewish family, for the Jews. But it, trans, it transitions in the book of Acts from the seventh day to the first day. And again and again and again in the book of Acts and Corinthians, we see this mention of the first day of the week. In fact, Paul instructs the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, that on the first day of the week, they should gather their, together and bring their money to give to the poor. So the first day of the week becomes this day of worship. You should go to church on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, if you can't because of work, we make all the uh, ways for you to come on Saturday or Thursday in our church and all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, why do we do worship on the first day of the week as Christians and not the last day of the week as Jews? Because it's a theological statement. It's a theological practical statement. First up, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And you have to understand that Jesus theologically, this is so good, I hope you listen, pay attention. Escúchame. Jesus is our Sabbath rest in the Spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, you've been working, trying hard, trying to please God, trying to please people, trying to, pe trying to be a good person. Okay, come to me. I will give you rest. Sabbath, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, and I, will, and I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest, listen, for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this theme in Hebrews chapter 4 when he says this, There remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now listen, this is so cool, so theological. In the Old Covenant, it was work to get to rest. It was six days of work, seventh day rest. In the New Covenant, rest starts our week, and we work from rest. Isn't this cool? This is a theological construct. It's a very important theological construct for us to see. The Jewish covenant pointed forward toward the rest that God will provide in Jesus. And guess what we live from as Christians? We live from the rest that God has provided in Christ Jesus. This is why in John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. It was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. By the way, the Jewish way of seeing the day was that the day started at night. The day started at dusk, and it ended at dusk. So a Jewish day goes from the nighttime to the next nighttime. That's the start of the day is night. Well, the Christian day starts when? In the morning. We don't start the day at night, do we? If you go to Israel still to this day, the Sabbath starts on Friday night. They shut everything down at about 7 o'clock at night. Can't go anywhere, can't buy anything. It's crazy. Complete shutdown. Sabbath. But it starts on Friday night and ends on Saturday night because that's when days start and end, according to the Jewish mindset. Well... In the Christian mindset, the day starts in the morning. Why? Because Jesus rose when it was still dark in the morning. He brings about not just a change in our week. He brings about a change in our day. He flips the script. Isn't this cool? He flips the script of the week. Now you don't work to get to rest. Now you work from the rest that God provides in Christ. And then the day starts with the morning of God's resurrection. Every morning is a reminder that one day you will close your eyes from this life. And one day you will close your eyes from this life and you will open your eyes in the next life. Do you know what you're doing when you're going to bed every night? You know what you're doing when you're going to bed every night? You are practicing death. 
so that you can experience resurrection. <laughs> That's exactly what you're doing because someday you're going to close your eyes here and wake up there. Why? Because of Jesus, the resurrection that he has accomplished for you. Another little cool tidbit about this, how Jesus has flipped the script and turned things around, even in our Bibles. The Bible is Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, and Greek in the New Testament. Now look at this chart on the, on the screen. Did you know that Hebrew is written from right to left? And it's read from right to left. And it is the first part of your Bible. It reads, in other words, according to the Western mindset, it reads backwards. It reads, it reads right to left. And the Greek New Testament reads like English. Left to right, written, left to right. Guess what's in the middle of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament? The cross. Jesus is the center. He's the center that points back to the prophets and the priests and the Old Testament kings saying, I am the fulfillment of that. And he is the foundation of the Christian faith pointing forward to his inevitable return. Is that not cool? I just love things like that. They're little tidbits. That's what you find here on the deep end. I don't do those things on the weekend, but here you go. That's just kind of reminding us that when we gather on the first day of the week, we are reminding ourselves that we as Christians, we work in the kingdom of God and in life from the rest, spiritual rest that God has provided for our souls in Christ Jesus, free of charge. We don't work to get God's approval, no. We work and live from God's approval. He has declared us righteous. That's called justification. And we are righteous because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done, which means we get to work from a full tank that, of righteousness that God has paid for in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That is why we gather on the first day of the week. This is my pastoral concern for you. I don't want you desperately trying to earn God's grace. I don't want you desperately trying to earn God's love. It's called catch-up Christianity, and it's exhausting. You're always trying to think, you you're always trying to do more for God. You're always trying to live up to what he's done for you. You're always trying to make sure that you've earned salvation. Okay, well, if it's earned, then it's not a gift. No, salvation is a gift, Ephesians 2.8. It's a gift of God. It is not of works. You can't earn it. It's freely given. When you receive a gift at Christmas, what do you say? Thank you. And then you're changed by the gift. Your life is altered by the gift. That's what salvation is. So when you gather on Sunday, please understand that you're gathering to remind yourself, Christ is risen. God loves you. God has saved you from your sins on the cross. And now you can live with his acceptance, his affirmation, his validation, and his strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen? That's why you go on the first day of the week. What else do we observe from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So we see that they are practicing what? They are practicing communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, some of you will say, you guys at Water Church don't practice the Lord's Supper every week on the weekend. No, we don't. We practice it every first Tuesday, and we practice it in our small groups. And the reason why is because it's, called, it's an old statement in the church. It's called fencing the table. It's an old theological pastoral term. Fencing the table means that you try to make sure that non-believers do not partake of the elements. You don't want non-believers to take, partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's for the church. It's our meal. It's, it's a symbolic representation of our participation in the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that we take, these, we take the body and blood of the Lord Jesus into our body to remind us that we have received him as Lord into our lives. He is, he is our sustenance as well. He is our food. He is our drink. He Help, he makes us live and sustains us and strengthens us. 
He does not do that for unbelievers. The only thing that he says to unbelievers is repent. The only thing he says to unbelievers is believe. Turn from your sins and believe. But for believers, he says, I'm here for you. I'm strengthening you. That's why we take communion where believers are present. And in our church, very modern church, very attractive church in, 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 in terms of how we do church, a lot of unbelievers. So we want to fence the table, and we'll do it on a regular basis on the weekend, but not every week. But when you gather as the church, you should take the Lord's Supper and remind yourself that Jesus is your sustenance. He is your food. He is your drink. Third, let's go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 7 to 9. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Look at this. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Woo! Midnight. That's a long sermon, friend. <laughs> now, I'm not going to name names, but sometimes people get mad at me for how long I tend to go when I'm teaching the Word of God. No names will be mentioned. No names in this studio will be mentioned. <laughs> They're over there, a little snickering over there. Sometimes you just need extended time in the Word, and the Word must be priority. That's the point. The priority of their gathering was around the Scriptures, and that's what Paul does. He speaks. He talks about Jesus for a long time. This is good. This is healthy. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why we do the deep end. I do the deep end because I want you to have more of the Word. I saw this 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 starvation, this spiritual starvation in the church because people only come to church once a week and then even the sermon there is not, it's not easy to gain all that you can from the sermon. So we have sermon-based small groups where we talk about what was talked about on the weekend and how it can apply to our lives. And then we have this moment where we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible so that you can be fed the word of the living God which strengthens your soul and empowers you to live for Christ and helps you handle the stresses and the anxieties of life because you know greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Where did, I hear that? Where did I hear that? I heard that in the Word. My job is to teach you the Word because the Word helps you live with strength. Well, Paul is talking until midnight, and then tragedy strikes. Check this out, verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep. As Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Okay. I've preached some long sermons, I, I have to admit. And some people have said, yep, sometimes you go long. But I have never killed anybody. I have never killed anybody. So I am better than Paul at that record. <laughs> he talks so long that this kid falls asleep and dies. And the lamps probably, you know, the, the heat from the lamps or the smell or whatever, they, you know, it's not, it's not lamps, lamps like these lamps. It's candles. So he probably just passed out and fell out and died. Well, this is tragedy. A young boy dying is tragedy. Any death is tragedy. Look what happens. Verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the young youth alive and were not a little comforted. In other words, they were ecstatic that this kid had come back from the dead. And there's great debate. Was he really dead or did he just like kind of pass out? Well, I think he was dead <laughs> because they were comforted. They were greatly comforted. And Paul's declaration that he wasn't really, that he was, that the life was still in him was not a declaration that he wasn't really dead. It was a declaration that there was life available to him through the power of the resurrection in Jesus. This is a miraculous resurrection. So that's the fourth thing that we should expect when we come to church. We should, we should expect that the church gathering is on the first day of the week that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we have extended time and center our gathering around the word of the Lord and not political uh, ideas and philosophies and stories and all that kind of stuff. And then third and fourth and finally, miraculous resurrection. 
we should expect miraculous resurrection, not always physical, of course, not always physical, even in the Bible, even in 1,500 years of human history that the Bible records, there's, no, there's only like seven resurrections, okay? So there's not many resurrections even in the entire history of the Bible. Resurrection doesn't happen that often. There is a resurrection coming at the last day, but what, what I think this is showing us is this, that when the word of God is central, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we gather through as the church, every weekend is an opportunity for someone to experience new life in Christ. Every weekend is an opportunity for someone to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, from darkness into light, from thinking that there is no hope and there is no God in this world to knowing the hope and knowing God in this world. That's what you should expect when you come to church. How about you? What happens when you go to church? Is it a political char- politically charged message? Is it a message about birds or the ecosystem or the wilderness or the rainforest? <laughs> Is it, let me get a little bit more political. Is it about Black Lives Matter? Is it about abortion? Is it about political hot topics? Or is it about Christ and what he's done for you? Now, we should address all those issues, yes, but they can't be central. They can't be central to what the church preaches. We must preach Christ, Christ Jesus, and him crucified. Why? Because only when someone hears the gospel is their heart spiritually resurrected to new life. Okay, we're going to move on. Verse 13 says this. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, so he had arranged, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. Aren't you glad you're not reading these words? <laughs> the next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set pa- sail to sail past Ephesus, so that he might have uh, to spend time, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. Remember, in Ephesus, he was attacked by a violent mob and was almost killed. So he wants to kind of avoid Ephesus where he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, he's going back to Jerusalem. By the way, he's going back to Jerusalem with the love gift that he was raising, the money that he was raising from the churches that had received the gospel because there was a famine in Jerusalem, and he still cared for his brothers, the Jews, and the city of Jerusalem. So he's doing something good here. But this next section of the book of Acts, chapter 20, is going to answer this important question. We asked the question and answered the question, what should you expect when you go to church? The second question I want to ask and answer is this. What should you expect from your pastor? So the person that's in the pulpit, the man that's preaching and teaching and feeding you God's word, what should you expect from him? Acts chapter 20, verse 17 tells us. Here we go. Uh, So it says this in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, now the elders are pastors, We have elders at our church, but really, elders are pastors. The terms in the Bible, elder, uh, shepherd, pastor, poimon, um, even the term episkopos, which is the term for bishop, uh, from which the Episcopalian church gets its denominational name. These terms are all interchangeable. So you have to understand that when we speak of elders, we are speaking of pastors, and elders are pastors. Now, there are some pastors that are called ruling pastors, ruling elders, and Paul talks about this in Timothy. And the ruling pastors have the charge of teaching and feeding God's word to God's people, and Paul says that they should be paid for their efforts. That's in 2 Timothy, I believe. But anyway, the point is, Paul is going to address the elders of Ephesus, and he's going to tell them, hey, this is how I lived, and this is how I want you to live. What 
you should expect from a pastor. Okay, let's get to it because it's very important because you want to belong to a church, a healthy church, a church that believes and proclaims Jesus and as a pastor who knows what he's there to do. Verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day until I set, uh, that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I got seven points for you on what you should expect from the pastor from this passage. Number one, let's, let's go to verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility. Humility. What should you expect from your pastor? What Paul did. He served with humility. A pastor is not a celebrity. A pastor is not called to be a celebrity. A pastor is not called to be the man. Okay, this is why at my church, I regularly hand the pulpit over to other men who I have taught how to preach because I don't want you only feeding on what I have to say. I've actually heard reports of people calling the church saying who's preaching this weekend. We will not tell you. You know it's not about who's preaching. It's about what's being preached. If the Bible is open and, and the scriptures are preached, someone's getting saved. And many times when I'm not there and someone else is there and they preach, a lot of people get saved. I do that strategically, too, for this reason, because I don't want your hope in me as a personality. I want your hope in Christ Jesus. When you get baptized, I will not baptize you. I've had people ask me to baptize them. I will not baptize you. I don't want you to put your faith in me. I want you to put your faith in Christ. I want you to see that the body of Christ is not a celebrity on stage. The body of Christ is the people in the church who are worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus from Sunday to Sunday. This is so important. So a pastor must have a measured approach to his position, humility. Secondly, he says this, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. This word caught me today. Tears and the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Uh, Paul served with humility. Secondly, Paul served with tears. Why are tears important to pastoral ministry? Because it means that they care. And I'm not talking about the woe is me tears. Like if your pastor is always like, oh, it feels so terrible. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about tears over people's hearts and souls and minds. Tears because sometimes people will turn on you. Some people will reject you. Some people will, like, Paul, like Jesus said, you will be hated. Matthew 10, 22. You'll be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You understand that people don't like the truth sometimes. And so when you tell the truth, they will turn on you and hate you and call you names on Facebook. <laughs> I've had that happen to me recently. Well, it comes with the territory. And it hurts. And if you're going to get into this business, you're going to hurt. You're going to feel the pain of people's sins. Because that's what people are. They're sinners. So is the pastor, by the way, but the pastor has to serve them, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's kind of the intermediary there. And so there's going to be tears. Jesus shed tears. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept as he went to the cross. He wept at the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he was familiar with sorrows. That's what Isaiah says, a man acquainted with grief. Jesus was abandoned by all his friends at his darkest hour. Paul will talk about the fact that he was abandoned by his friends. Everyone that he knew, everyone that he partnered with, left him in his darkest hour. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. In other words, Paul says, I was on trial for my life and not a single person stood up and said he's a good guy. But guess what? The Lord stood by me. That'll hurt you. 
That'll bring tears. But he was familiar with the grief of the Lord Jesus. And it's really something. A pastor who weeps over the spiritual condition of his city is a pastor you want to trust. It's a pastor that you want to follow. Moving forward, he says, I did not shrink, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. So number three, what should you expect from your pastor? Paul sought to help them in the word. Profitable. I want to teach you what is profitable. I want to help you. That's what I try to do on this podcast. I want to help you. I don't want this to be something that you just say, okay, I checked off my spiritual boxes today. I watched the deep end. Good for me. No, I want to help you with this content. I want it to be helpful to you as a, as a part of the member of the body of Christ. Look, your physical body parts need exercise. They need nourishment. They need strengthening. Well, your spiritual life as a member of the body of Christ needs spiritual nourishing, profitability, beneficial things that should come from your pastor. See, I teach people to preach God's word and then I let them preach at our church. And the thing that I tell them is this. The last question you have to ask yourself while you prepare the word of God for God's people is this. The last question you have to ask yourself is this. Is what I'm about to say going to help them? Because I need to help people. People need help. Everybody needs help. You need help. I need help. Have you ever been so down and somebody just called you or texted you at the right moment because they just felt that they needed to reach out to you? Wasn't that so helpful? That's what the church should be. It should be a resource for help. It should be helpful to you, beneficial. You should walk out the doors of the church and say, I'm glad I went there today. That was good. Okay, moving forward. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. And I never noticed this, but look at this. The two different places where Paul preached, which means Paul taught publicly and privately. In other words, Paul stood in the pulpit and proclaimed, thus saith the word of the Lord. And then he went to the houses and he taught them more intimately. He taught privately. And I think a good pastor teaches publicly, but he also has people that he's training for ministry privately. This is modeled by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4, I'm sorry, in Mark 4, 33, when it says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear to the crowds. But he did not speak to them without a parable. And then verse 34, it says, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So this is the ministry of Jesus. He proclaims publicly, and then he says, okay, guys, the 12, come over here. I want to show you what I just did. A good preacher, a good pastor is preaching publicly, but then he's saying something privately to those he is entrusting to speak as well. Uh, moving forward, testifying to both Jews and Greeks, he says in verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. Not just God loves you. Repent. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the number five thing. Paul taught a consistent message. What should you expect from your pastor? A consistent message. He doesn't cater the message to based on who's going to show up. He doesn't sidestep an issue because somebody might be there who doesn't agree with him on that issue. He speaks the truth. Sometimes people tell me, oh, somebody left because you said something about that. Yeah, and that people left when Jesus preached. People left when Paul preached. The word of God will offend some people. That's going to be, that's part and parcel of what, what comes with the territory. The question is, is the pastor consistent? Is he going to tell the same thing to different kinds of people, different types of people? Is he going to offend both left and right politic people? Is he going to offend the good people and the bad people? I mean, that's, that, that's the message you want. You want a message that's consistent and true because it comes from the word of God. Verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit's got a hold on me, and he's going to lead me to, he's leading me to Jerusalem. And then it says this, not knowing what will happen to me. Sometimes when the Spirit leads you, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. 
Somebody needed to hear that today. Sometimes when you're, when you're led by the Spirit, you have no idea what's about to happen. And then verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, praise and celebration await me. <laughs> no. No, no, no. What does the Holy Spirit testify to Paul? That in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then he says in verse 24, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is Paul saying here? I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. What should you expect from your pastor? What should you expect from your leader in the church? He must be led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit, listen, you don't always know what the outcome is going to be. Sometimes to be led by the Spirit, you're going to be led into a place of hostility. It doesn't mean that you weren't led. It doesn't mean that it wasn't God's voice. We have a funny way of judging God's voice by the results of what we think is God's voice. And if it was bad results, we must say, oh, it wasn't God's voice. And if it was good results, we go, oh, that was God's voice. Who says? Paul follows God's voice and he gets hated and he gets imprisoned and he gets beaten and he gets, and he gets tortured as he follows God's voice. Christians are famous for saying, well, I didn't want to do that because I didn't have any peace about it. I didn't want to step up and serve because I didn't have any peace about it. Who said anything about peace? Sometimes when you face off against the devil, you're going to feel a lack of peace. Paul says we wrestle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavy places. What about that brings you peace? Now, can God give you inner peace in spite of the outer conflict? Yes. But sometimes when you do God's will you will experience a lack of peace in the moment. And yes, God will give you peace in that, inside, but there's still a war to be fought in the spiritual realm. Please don't judge whether it was God's will by whether or not you feel peace. Your feelings can be deceptive. God can give you peace in spite of your feelings, in spite of the hostility that you experience. Let's not judge God's word by our experience. Let's judge our experience by God's word. This is what Paul does. And then he says this, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. In other words, this is goodbye. Therefore, I testify to you this day, and I am innocent of the blood of all. Look at this phrase. What a loaded phrase. I testify to you on this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. He's talking to the elders. Why are you innocent of the blood of all, Paul? What did you do? What did you not do? What did you do wrong? What could you have done wrong? Here's what he says. Here's why I'm innocent of the blood of all. Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You know what Paul's saying here? It's a powerful statement. Preachers better be paying attention to these kind of statements. You're going to be held accountable for what you don't tell God's people. You're going to be held accountable for what you refuse to say even though it was true. This is why spineless pastors are the worst thing in the church. They, 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 they shrink because they don't want to offend May it never be in your church and in mine. So Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is number seven. Paul revered God's word more than man's opinions. He revered God's word. I'm going to tell you the truth because it's what God has said. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to wilt because you might not like it. 2 Timothy 4, 3, Paul warns Timothy, he says, the time is coming, Timothy, when men will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Oh, I don't like to go to church with that pastor because he says things that I don't like. So I will go on YouTube and I will watch this pastor who says things that I like. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
If you're going to a church based on what the pastor tells you that you like or don't like, you're doing it wrong. If the word of God is being preached, if it conflicts with what you think, change your opinion. (laughs) If you disagree with what God's word says, change your opinion. Don't find a preacher who will tell you what you want to hear. I always use this illustration. I've had three kids. Sometimes they do really, really childish things, like running into a street. They will, t- they will be tempted. A child will be tempted to run into a street after a ball. Okay, if I have a child that's running into a street, I don't say, oh, they're there. I love you. No, I scream. I shout. I try to grab him and yank him back. I don't care if I give him whiplash. I don't care if I pull the arm out of his socket. I want to save his life. A pastor who cares about you will scream when you are about to destroy yourself, will yank you back, will snatch you out of the fires of hell because your soul is precious to God. And this is a spiritual war that we are fighting. The truth that I want to share with you is this. Shrinking preachers, shrinking, wilting, I call them wilting, spineless preachers, tell you what you want to hear. Gospel preachers tell you what you need to hear. So Paul continues with the elders, and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves. Watch out. This is a fight we're in. Pay attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Remember that Jesus bought this people. He bought these people with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. There are going to be false teachers. They will come in. They will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, look, from among your own selves, please listen to this Please listen to this. Somebody from your church will try to deceive you and draw you away from the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. And this is what happens so often in the church is people people have these relationships with people who become malcontents toward the church and then instead of following the church, they follow the malcontent right out of the church. It's right here. It's a warning right here in scripture. And they will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. He goes on, verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you again with tears. And now I commend you to God God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I could preach about this for a long time. I don't have time. We're almost out of time. I'm just going to continue. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or peril. That's a standard for God's pastors. Pastors can make money on the gospel, but if they are greedy for gain, that is a problem. You yourselves know these hands have ministered with, to my own necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he, said to, he, he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. A pastor must not be greedy. A pastor must model generosity. Um, I preach tithing and I practice tithing and I tithe on the gross. I had a guy in my office today tell me that he was challenged about that. He tithed on the net for years, and then he suddenly heard me talk about tithing on the gross. He thought he couldn't do it. He started doing it. God blessed him. I do this. I do this because I don't want greed to get into my heart. You need a pastor who's not greedy for gain, is giving, is is generous, is going to give freely because he knows that all that he has is in the hand of God. And verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And that's the end of the chapter. I want you just to see there's weeping, there's kissing, there's embracing, there's sorrow, 
Paul's leaving. They're never going to see him again. You know what this says? You know what this says to me? This is a wonderful passage here. There was real, authentic adoration. There was real, authentic love and community. See, we're so tempted to not preach the truth because we don't want to offend. But let me tell you something, and I hope there's preachers who are listening to me right now. If you don't preach the truth, if you don't challenge people, all you create is consumer Christians. And consumer Christians are highly individualistic people who care nothing but for themselves. And that's not a church. And that's not a community. And most importantly, that's not Jesus. We have to confront selfishness. We have to confront the sins of our hearts so that the power of sin is broken and our hearts are changed and conformed into the image of Jesus and we live for one another instead of ourselves. Let me put this in summary. What to expect from a church gathering? Number one, first day of the week, the Lord's Supper. Number three, extended time in the Word. Number four, miraculous resurrection. Every time someone gathers in our church, there's hope for a resurrection. I had this, I had this powerful illustration come to me this week. This was on uh, a woman's uh, Facebook page. She has been attending our church for a couple of weeks, and here's what she writes on her Facebook page publicly. That's why I share it now on the deep end. As I listened to the pastor's message, tears were down my face, she said. He talked about forgiveness, not only having forgiveness for others, but also forgiving yourself. Most importantly, asking God for forgiveness. The pastor began to pray for us all. Not only did I hear his words, but I felt them in my soul as well. Needless to say, I will be returning this church on a weekly basis. My father would be so proud. Most of you know that I've been riddled with guilt most of my life because of witnessing my brother's drowning. It is not something that I can erase from my memories. It's something that I must learn to live with. I am tired of punishing myself. I just want to include you in my journey. She found grace. She found forgiveness. She found hope in Jesus because the truth has to be shared. You know what she responded to, by the way, when she says forgiveness? I had a, a black brother in Christ, a black preacher on stage with me this week. His name is Zenzo. He talked about a racial incident that he had with a, with a police officer in Somerville, Massachusetts. And he went home and he was devastated and couldn't tell his wife about it for two days. He eventually told her, instead of calling the police and reporting him, he chose to get down on his knees with his wife and forgive him. Forgiving the racist police officer. That's how you change the world. That's how you live for Christ. What do you expect from a church now? What do you expect from a gospel preacher in some? Number one, humility, tears, help and benefit for life from the word, they teach you the Bible and helps you. Public and private instruction, a consistent message led by the spirit, fear of God's word more than man's opinions. I started this podcast by saying it's time for the church to reclaim its divine calling, its divine prerogative to stand in the gap and speak for God. We've got so many unhealthy churches. So many unhealthy pastors, so many spineless pastors and carnal churches. And this is why though 48 million American adults go to church on a weekly basis. America is lost, broken, scared, anxious, and fearful. We need to reclaim our divine right. The truth that I want to leave you with is this. The church must regain its heavenly calling if it's to make any earthly impact. Shrinking, shrinking pastors cannot do it. Churches that do not honor the Lord Jesus Christ will not do it. Let us learn from Scripture's lead here, and let us be the church that Jesus came to create. I hope this content has been helpful to you. Like and subscribe on the Deep End YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TV. Like and subscribe. Hit the not like button, even if you didn't like it. You needed to hear it, so hit the like button. And hit the notification bell so that you can update your phone every time that we are live. I'm glad you joined us, and I'll see you next week. Actually, no, I won't see you next week. We're going to do something special next week. It's going to be the top 10 
past episodes of the Deep End Podcast. So join us next Tuesday all day as we run down the top 10 most watched Deep End Podcast episodes. I will see you in two weeks. I'm Tim Hatch, and this was The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.